Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the 22nd day of October 2022. I'm your host, Mark Hall. And since you're hearing this show, if you're hearing this show, that means the nukes obviously haven't flown, but just about everything else that can break down and is being engineered to do so as rapidly as possible is certainly on track. And as is often the case, I guess the best way to make sense of a week of continued insanity is more or less chronologically, starting with earlier in the week and even over the weekend. Starting with this one. China orders evacuation of all of its citizens still in Ukraine, sparking fears, which turn out to be at least partly founded, of an escalation in the World War III front in the Ukraine. The foreign ministry from China issued an urgent call on Saturday for any Chinese nationals still in Ukraine to get out of there immediately, sparking speculation about what's behind the unspecified appeal and sudden scramble. The notification is widely being seen as the most forceful evacuation order yet and suggests that Beijing just may be aware of some Russian plans for something eminently bigger, or maybe they know because of their hooks within the Biden regime what he's planning, what his puppet meisters, oops, maybe I'm talking about the same people, are planning, and that could include sweeping airstrikes against Ukrainian cities, whether they're from Russia or a false flag. After all, it wouldn't be the first time that the United States and or NATO has hit at allies, right, Germany? By Monday morning, there was this follow-up from a whole bunch of sources. Russia has attacked, or so they say. Somebody has, anyway. The central part of Kiev with drones during the morning rush hour. Russian forces are also shelling other cities around the country since earlier this morning. Here's another story that probably is an amazing coincidence, or maybe not, courtesy of the Hal Turner Radio Network, but it's actually been well-known for quite a while. On Monday, NATO launched its regularly scheduled nuclear deterrence drills. <laughs> Isn't that a funny way to put it? In Western Europe, the 30-nation alliance says the story has stressed the, quote, routine recurring nature of the training activity, which runs until October 30th. And yes, it was planned long before Russia took the bait and invaded Ukraine. And no, it's not linked at all, we tell you, to the current situation. But it will involve U.S. B-52 long-range bombers and up to 60 total aircraft to take part in training flights over Belgium, the United Kingdom, and the North Sea. And the nuclear drills, which don't allegedly involve live bombs, is called Steadfast Noon. And how's that for a thinly-veiled reference to a great big bright explosion? And it's likely to coincide with Moscow's own annual nuclear drills, which are dropped Grom, normally conducted in late October, and in which Russia, too, lets its long-range nuclear-capable bombers out to play, along with submarines and missiles. The drills that will involve about 14 countries and up to 60 aircraft, including the most advanced fighter jets on the market, as well as old-fashioned B-52 long-range bombers, will fly in from Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota, said the statement. What happens thereafter, folks, is probably anybody's guess, but uh, guess who's not playing with a full deck? Here's a story I could have put in the list anywhere, but I want to make sure at least it gets out there because it's ironic, isn't it, that this is now being reported by the Daily Mail. U.S. researchers, it says, have developed a brand new lethal COVID strain in the lab. You might even call it gain-of-function research, echoing the type of experiments that anybody that's been paying attention, they say that many fear, started the pandemic. 
over two years ago. The mutant variant, they say, which is a hybrid of Omicron, combined with the original Wuhan Booga Booga Fauci flu, killed 80% of the mice infected with it at Boston University. And when a similar group of rodents were exposed to the standard Omicron strain, all of them survived and experienced only mild symptoms. So if somebody developed the Omicron strain, in other words, as a replacement for the actual bioweapon, the COVID turned you into a spike protein generator mRNA mod. Working for the good guys, in other words, or at least the good God. Looks like Boston University and those that are funding it are fighting back. The scientist says also infected human cells with the hybrid variant and found it was five times more infectious than Omicron, suggesting their new Fauci variant may be the most contagious form yet. And here's a funny part. Ha ha. No, this isn't funny at all, really. It suggests, says Orwell's Ministry of Truth working through the Daily Mail, this will no doubt surprise many Americans, yeah, who think they're getting news from CNN, that such experiments still manage to go on during the Biden regime in the United States, despite obvious concerns and a whole hell of a lot of data, the similar studies almost certainly led to the COVID outbreak globally which first, they say, and here they're lying through their teeth, and we all know it, began spreading from a wet market in Wuhan, China, just a few miles from a similar high-security BSL Level 4 lab that, uh, well, has been caught, and even the worst of the criminally negligent networks has now had to admit, manipulated bat coronaviruses and probably got a really big payoff as a result. Furthermore, says the Daily Mail, Chinese scientists were found to have wiped out crucial databases, guess who gave them that order, and stifled independent investigations, I'll say it again, guess who gave that order, into the facility's obvious clear links to the pandemic, and of course, there are other links too that Big Brother, and especially the Daily Mail, isn't going to point out to you, like a fellow named Hunter Biden, his laptop, and a certain shipment on Air Force Two from a bioweapons lab that the Russians at least are willing to talk about, they found a whole bunch of them in Ukraine, and the waste media in the United States still tries to cover up and lie about. And maybe you can guess, that seems to be part of the reason why they're pushing World War III so hard. No wonder the news did come out over the weekend that the Biden Fuhrer, almost certainly in response to somebody pulling one of his strings, extended the coronavirus emergency for another 90 days. And there's another one of the big whopping lies that had a really short shelf life. By the time we got to Tuesday this week, there was a theme that really began to kind of emerge from the smokescreen. See if it doesn't kind of eventually, at least, stick out at you. The first images say a number of stories online. The one I'm looking at first comes from Tyler Dern and Zero Hedge of the blown up to smithereens Nord Stream pipeline both one and two. They're not saying which one this is, but there are photographs online anyway, and they reveal 165 feet of huge, heavy-duty, thick steel and concrete-reinforced pipeline that was blown to smithereens and is either completely gone or buried in a huge crater beneath the seafloor. Zero Hedge's summary begins by reminding us that the explosions, plural, were so powerful that both Swedish and Danish authorities said that seismic devices in the Baltic Sea region recorded essentially earthquake-equivalent explosions of around magnitude 2.1 to 2.3. EU authorities have thus guesstimated an explosive load of several hundred kilos in order to destroy both pipelines, triggering leaks at no less than four locations, two in Denmark's waters and two in Sweden's. Oh, and get this, right up front, the Daily Mail propaganda still tries to get you to believe that the attack was, quote, assumed by many, by the idiots, I think, out there, to have been a Russian attack. 
And now, say the stories, neither EU leaders nor Western so-called intelligence sources are able to concretely say, and you know why, don't you, who blew up the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines in NATO's backyard. But I can't help but think anybody with half a brain knows it's pretty darn obvious. Don't forget, the Latin term is quo bene. Swedish newspaper Expressen secured the first public images of the heavily damaged pipelines. The Daily Mail, at least, does show lots of nice pictures, videos, and maps. Taken by an underwater drone operated by a Norwegian company called Blue Eye Robotics. 80 meters below the surface of the Baltic Sea. And the Daily Mail is at least fair enough to quote the Kremlin, even if they continue to blame them, saying that they claimed on Tuesday that the investigations into blasts that damaged, uh, no, destroyed at least a huge piece of both Nord Stream pipelines under the Baltic Sea, appeared to have been set up with the intention, they say, of falsely blaming Russia. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, elementary logic. That seems to be well beyond the ability of most of the Western waste-stream press showed the pipeline damage was a serious blow to Russia's interest. He claimed the investigation was being conducted secretively and without Moscow's involvement. I would say, duh. The main thing he added is, the way it looks in public, according to statements we're hearing from Germany, from France, and from Denmark, this investigation was set up inherently to put the blame on Russia, unquote. Here's one that arguably shouldn't surprise too many people, courtesy of J.D. Hayes and Natural News. The people pulling the Biden puppet strings are now putting the finishing touches, it begins, on an executive order that, when enacted, do they have to actually enact these things, or do they just put a pen in his hand and show him where to put his X? Anyway, it will tank American manufacturing and further destroy the U.S. economy, but of course, he will blame it on, say it with me, folks, Russia, Russia, Russia. That is, if he doesn't drop his cue cards or misread the teleprompter. Why? Because because the deep state operatives and uh, swamp critters running the Biden regime will soon have the puppet sign an executive order that they wrote banning the importation of, this time, aluminum from Russia. And according to Bloomberg News, and oh yeah, you can trust them too, Biden's handlers are considering three options. An outright ban, expanding tariffs to levels that would basically amount to an outright ban, or sanctioning the country's top metal producer, United Company Rusal International, PJSC. And because the deep state left long ago tanked American manufacturing of heavy metals and even light metals like aluminum, Russia has now become the second leading producer of aluminum in the world, right behind, you can guess, can't you, communist China. So, a total ban on importation of Russian aluminum would certainly benefit those who are pulling the Biden crime family's strings, the CCP and his pals. Bloomberg News has reported that Russia once supplied around 10% of all U.S. aluminum, but as of this August, Russia had become the third largest exporter of metal to the United States. Zero Hedge has reported that Alcoa Corporation, the largest U.S. aluminum producer, recently sent a letter to the London Metals Exchange indicating that Russian metal could be, uh-oh, dumped on global markets in order to suppress prices. And wait just a darn minute, folks. If there's one thing you know this regime won't allow to happen under any circumstances, it's prices being suppressed of anything that people really need, especially to build stuff or keep their jobs. But in this case, it says the Biden Fuhrer had previously held off on sanctioning Russian aluminum for fear of, <laughs> yeah, sure, disrupting global markets. But given the ongoing war and move towards World War III going nuclear, that might not be as much of a concern any longer. And it's obvious to anybody with half a brain that U.S.-EU sanctions against Russia to limit energy flows into global markets have certainly backfired. With the result that high-level discussions about banning Russian aluminum have been ongoing now for weeks. 
which I can't help but think means this time they know darn well it's going to backfire, and they're loving it. I'm going to call this next one a very much related story, particularly if you understand how political slime operates. The Biden regime is going to announce another 15 million barrel drain on the not-so-strategic-anymore, not-so-much-in-the-way-of-reserves-anymore, SPR, or Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and, oh yeah, right before the midterms, too. Oil markets are drifting sideways, says Zero Hedges coverage Tuesday morning after the regime has at least leaked plans to release 10 or maybe 15 million barrels more crude from the rapidly dwindling Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Why? Well, they claim it's to suppress gasoline and diesel prices at the pump. But not for long, and of course, oh yeah, right before the midterm rigging of the election, said Bloomberg, citing people familiar with the matter. As for the rest of us, we could have pretty much taken a guess. And this announcement, one of the largest ever, comes as 180 million barrels have already been drained from the nation's once emergency stockpile since May. A lot of that went to communist China, as you probably know. And now the SPR has been cut to a record low, just 22 days worth of supply. Which means after the election, if they get what they've been jonesing for, it won't even last through Christmas. And especially, this isn't such great news if you realize the leftists are gunning big time for nuclear war. Maybe they figure nobody's going to really need gasoline for too much longer anyway. But you've got to give them credit. They're certainly working hard to make sure it won't be available. Item, and I'm going to call this another related story. The Biden legacy, says TGP and Jim Hoft. South Africa has now confirmed that Saudi Arabia, remember when they were a U.S. ally, is going to join the BRICS alliance along with China and Russia and the others and move away from the United States with the obvious and certainly intended explosive consequences. This, a reports, after South African President Cyril Ramaphosa held a two-day summit with Saudi Arabia on mostly economic matters. And at the conclusion of the summit, he confirmed the intent of Saudi Arabia to join the BRICS anti-dollar economic coalition. The Wall Street Journal reported that Saudi Arabia, the largest U.S. export market in the Middle East, invited Chinese President Xi to visit Riyadh in March as relations with the U.S. have faltered dramatically since the uh, stealing of the election by the Biden puppet. This according to the Wall Street Journal, except, of course, for the really truthful part there. According to a report from CNN, though, U.S. intelligence, SIC, agencies have assessed that Saudi Arabia is now actively manufacturing its own ballistic missiles with the help of China, a relationship that could have domino effects across Middle Eastern countries. And, of course, that means they don't need the United States for the one thing that, at least once upon a time, we used to still manufacture. That would have been advanced weaponry, a lot of which probably employs aluminum, if you think about it. The dementia-ridden U.S. not leader continues to be openly mocked on the international stage, and now former U.S. allies are openly aligning with China. Let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. I agree. <laughs> and don't forget, Saudi Arabia announced back in March they were considering accepting the Chinese offer of the yuan in place of the U.S. dollar for future transactions. And if you don't think that will destroy what's left of the U.S. economy, folks, just wait and see. One more related economic story indicating the depth of destruction the Biden regime is able to bring about on behalf of their communist Chinese and Obama regime handlers. Although, yeah, that probably also is redundant. Cargo ship owners, says Natural News, have been canceling sailings on some of the world's busiest routes in the middle of what's normally their peak season, illustrating the serious impact that worldwide, mostly dollar-based inflation, has been having on consumer spending. This summer, import volumes to the U.S. started to drop dramatically, a strong sign that inflation is taking its toll on consumer demand, and what with Trans-Pacific shipping rates now falling by at least 75% over one year ago, 
it's clear that people are reducing their spending or maybe being forced to reduce it significantly. And this represents a dramatic reversal from the situation just a few months back when a lack of shipping space saw freight rates skyrocket and record-setting profits for carriers. You may recall that companies like Walmart and Home Depot even had to charter their own ships to overcome port bottlenecks and meet surging demand. But now we're seeing shipping rates drop 75% or so worldwide among plummeting U.S. demand. And this major drop in rates comes as demand weakens and big retailers continue to cancel their orders with vendors while seeking to reduce their inventories. Case in point, daily freight rates, which ran around $19,000 to move a single cargo container across the Pacific Ocean in 2021, now stand at just 3900 bucks. And one carrier in the UK told the Lodestar that other than at the start of the pandemic, quote, I can't recall another time when the market has turned so quickly, and it looks like it'll get a whole lot worse before it gets better. Nike recently said they had 65% more inventory than a year ago, and they'll need to use markdowns to start moving stock, while FedEx says it's going to be canceling flights and parking cargo planes as shipping volumes plummet. Bottom line, folks, and I've said this before, if you need something like a big ticket item, say appliances or repair parts or things that won't be available when the regime completely turns communist and shuts down, you better get it now. You might even find it on sale, as some, at least, are trying to close out remaining inventory. But uh, don't dawdle. It won't last. Let's change gears for a bit, and I'll introduce this sequence with a piece from DNYUZ that says talk of civil war online is being ignited by the FBI's illegal, unconstitutional, and, of course, unprecedented search of the elected president's Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. Online researchers, it says, are zeroing in on what they call a worrying trend because posts on Twitter, for example, that mention civil war has soared nearly 3,000% within just a brief period of time, literally hours, after that essentially open declaration of war on all that was once truth, justice, and constitutional in America by the Department of Just Us, as Mr. Trump's supporters blasted the action as a provocation. Other spikes followed, including two Facebook, Reddit, Telegram, Parler, Gab, and True Social, and so forth and so on. Posts mentioning civil war then jumped a few weeks later, after the Biden furor branded Mr. Trump and the MAGA Republicans a threat to the, quote, very foundations of our republic, as if he knew what that was, in that speech from the gates of hell in front of the once birthplace of liberty in this country, Philadelphia's Independence Hall. Now they note, as the midterm and the rigging that we all know is going to happen approaches, political talk, it says, grows more and more urgent and more and more heated. There are lots and lots of quotes in here from politicos basically underlining the rhetoric and making the case. But after Biden delivered his speech on so-called democracy, they conclude, Brian Gibby, a freelance data entry specialist in Charlotte, North Carolina, wrote a Substack post in which he claimed that he believed the Second Civil War began with the unelected presidents openly Hitler-invoking, incredibly divisive, and yeah, downright evil remarks. Saying, and now, quote that fellow, I have never seen a more divisive, hate-filled speech from an American president. Sick, and of course, unquote, asked by the New York Times. <laughs> and right there, you know something is amiss. To explain his views, Mr. Gibby said he believed the Biden Fuhrer was, quote, escalating a hot conflict in America. And he worries something will happen around the November elections akin to January 6th, but, quote, much more violent. So he said... Plan ahead, stock up, stay safe, and, yeah, this makes obvious sense, get out of big leftist cesspool cities, if you can. 
From there, I'm going to go to this story that I think at least shows somebody out there is aware of what's going on and maybe even trying to build some bridges. And first, we'll turn to the Daily Mail's coverage of the same story I saw in the Gateway Pundit. Tulsi Gabbard, they claim, will campaign with Republican Arizona Governor candidate Carrie Lake and the GOP Senate hopeful Blake Masters in what they call a crucial toss-up state as she throws her support behind the GOP after leaving the, yeah, and she said it, incredibly far left, woke promoting and anti-white racism promoting as well, so-called Democrats. Monday night, she endorsed pro-Trump candidate Carrie Lake, saying that she, quote, isn't afraid to call out the warmongering elitist cabal of permanent Washington and the military-industrial complex, and indicated that she would show up at a rally for the two of them in Arizona Tuesday night. Just one week, they note, after the former 2020 presidential hopeful announced she was abandoning her Democrat label. Notes TGP's coverage, Gabbard made the huge announcement last night, Monday night, on President Trump's true social platform, saying, quote, Carrie Lake isn't afraid to call out the warmongering elitist cabal of permanent Washington and the military-industrial complex and their propagandists in the mainstream media. That story notes that Carrie Lake told TGP that her event will run at the exact same time that Arizona PBS betrayed the Arizona Clean Elections Commission and runs their interview with the openly racist so-called Democrat Katie Hobbs, who have now succeeded in allowing her to dodge any debate with Carrie Lake in defiance of the Clean Elections Commission itself. TGP, they say, has also reported extensively on Katie Hobbs' actual record of racism, her embracement of slavery in high school, her failure to name just one good thing about the Hispanic community in Arizona and her recent freakout when she was confronted by a black reporter, even though the mainstream media propagandists have basically refused to cover any of Hobbes' grossest past incidents of racism. And since that's really quite a statement, at this point I will break for a second and go to the uh, addenda here where the Gateway Pundit notes that during Hobbes' time in the Arizona Senate, she was unanimously convicted by two separate juries of racial discrimination and discriminatory firing of a black woman, costing the state nearly three million bucks in damages. And they note that they've reported extensively on racist Democrat Katie Hobbes, who was recently discovered to have participated in and led her high school's Slave Day tradition, where they held a mock slave auction and had students shackled in chains. And I guess, folks, in fairness, that's no worse than what happens routinely today, where they get kids to cut off their genitalia or teach them all kinds of openly racist crap, trying to tell them it's history. But again, really, the point here is the hypocrisy and, of course, the twisted coverage. And if you have any doubts, even the corrupt rhino set out Liz Cheney has agreed to campaign on behalf of the Katie Hobbs campaign to destroy not only Arizona, but America too. Birds of a feather. Well, birds of prey, anyway. And here's another story. I thought it was at least funny. The Trump-endorsed gubernatorial candidate for Arizona took questions from the media after her ninth, quote, Ask Me Anything tour, and a stop with Black Voices for Kerry and Black Voices for Trump's Jack Brewer in Phoenix, Arizona, on Monday night. During the press conference, Kerry took legitimate questions from the Gateway Pundit correspondent, Jordan Conradson, and MAAP Real Talk show's George In response to questions, Lake called out the fake news media hacks for their bogus coverage of the stolen 2020 election and the fact that they tried to smear her as an election denier. When she was asked about that election and what she had to say for herself as she was being maligned, 
Carrie Lake pulled out a stack of pages filled with Democrats denying elections ever since the year 2000. Over 150 examples in total stating, if you're going to start throwing around terms like election denier, let's just remember who the other election deniers were. Hillary Clinton, although she didn't pronounce it correctly, and all the Democrats. Why, even Biden's own paid liar for hire was guilty of denying the results of President Trump's 2016 election win over crooked Hillary and Brian Kemp's 2018 election over Stacey Abrams. And if you've seen any of the multiple video compilations, folks, the hypocrisy just leaps right off the screen at you. And I guess speaking of hypocrisy, let's jump out of chronological order just for a second and stay on the hypocrisy theme. Steve Bannon, who isn't far enough left to be really above the law, like, say, Obama-era IRS official Lois Lerner, the dog ate her homework, or maybe Mr. Fast and Furious himself, Eric Holder, who was in utter contempt of Congress, but instead of going to jail, got a nice cushy ex post facto bribe from a high-profile law firm instead. Steve Bannon, though, who didn't even lie to Congress like the others, he just didn't show up to their bogus committee subpoena, has been given four months in jail and a hefty fine for ignoring something that shouldn't have happened anyway if we still had a Constitution. And as for contempt of Congress, who are we kidding? They've earned it. And we'll be right back. Back now to the second segment of the show for this evening. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and we've now worked our way up past the first part of the week. But as we continue this part of the look back, I'd like to begin this way. Oftentimes, your host would like to think that maybe one of the things I hope to bring people on this new show is the idea of connecting the dots. So much is going on, hopefully we can make some sense out of it, especially via a biblical worldview. And this was certainly one of those weeks where either that will be writ large, or maybe you just have to step back and look at the shotgun blast of dots that has penetrated the reality of so many people that haven't been paying attention. How do you connect them? Well, just to the point where it looks like a great big explosion. And that metaphor is apt on so many levels. But let's start taking a look into that shotgun blast with this one. I think it's one of the more uh, revealing. Forget oil, says a headline from Tyler Durden and Zero Hedge. The real crisis, and we've talked about this, folks, for months. It kind of fell off the radar, but it should be back again, is diesel inventories. The U.S. is now down. Let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. I agree. (laughs) Yeah, let's go, Brandon, to only 25 days left. For all the drama it begins surrounding Biden's latest strategic petroleum reserve fiasco and intended destruction of what's left of America and the regime's ridiculous claim to be stimulating U.S. energy producers to pump more oil because, you know, Biden promises to buy it all at some unknown point in the future, whatever's left. I guess, folks, by that logic, armed robbers might stimulate people to learn how to use a gun. 
if you just trust him long enough for them to rig the election. Trouble is, says the piece, right now he's draining more than a million barrels of emergency U.S. energy lifeblood just to buy a few midterm votes. Or at least, your host will suggest, cover up for the theft of a whole lot of midterm votes, assuring energy producers that even though they have no incentive to produce more, trust us, someday you might want to. Still, they say, the real crisis is not in oil or gas, but in diesel. And they cite a whole bunch of references that have built up and brought us to this place, noting that the crisis gripping the U.S. diesel market is now out of hand as demand surges while supplies remain at the lowest seasonal level for this time of the year, you know, right before the Xmas shopping season ever. According to new data, suspect as it may be, from Big Brother, released Wednesday. Reports the EIA, the U.S. now just has 25 days remaining of diesel supply. That's the lowest ever since 2008. And while inventories are a record low, the four-week moving average of distillates supplied, a proxy for total demand, has now in contrast risen to its highest seasonal level since 2007. In short, we have record low supply, courtesy of stifling regulations, that have led to a historic shortage of refining capacity, meeting up with record high demand. And, folks, that's in spite of a supply chain that's been broken and a whole lot of farmers that can't harvest crops that they weren't able to plant in the spring anyway, but not to worry because there's no truck to deliver them. And now with the Mississippi River dropping like a rock, even barge traffic is at risk. As Bloomberg's Javier Bloss writes, such low levels should be alarming because, quote, diesel is the workhorse of the global economy. It powers trucks and vans, excavators, freight trains, and ships, and a shortage would mean higher costs for literally everything, from trucking to farming to construction. And I guess, folks, if you wanted to destroy the global economy, this might be the place to start. And here's an irony. Reporting on the same story, oilprice.com notes none of this is good news for a country that consumes almost 20 million barrels of oil daily. And now, finally, you would have thought this would have happened a long time ago, many analysts and now even, can you imagine this, some so-called legislators have called on the Biden regime and the fake White House to stop using these strategic petroleum reserves for purposes it was never supposed to be used for. Hey, especially if you've got a war on tap. Oh, and let's not forget, at an average price of $5.32 a gallon, diesel prices are now 50% higher this time than last year. And that's in spite of the efforts to drop them at least temporarily a bit lower right before the midterm fiasco. The story goes on to talk about record high diesel prices by the barrel and notes that while American refiners are now enjoying the best ever margins on diesel fuel, they're still able to make a big profit. In other words, turning a barrel of crude oil into, uh, well, less than one barrel of diesel. It's called the diesel crack spread. That's hit a record high now of $86.50 a barrel, up four and a half times from the average over the first 20 years of this century of only $15.7 per barrel. Essentially, concludes the piece, we are rapidly running out of options. And here's a funny thing to note, folks. It turns out to be just at the time when the regime in Washington and the deep state that's pulling their puppet strings is pushing the entire world towards perhaps the biggest war, maybe it'll go nuclear, in all history. Wouldn't that be a funny time for the Air Force, for example, and the Army to run out of kerosene and diesel fuel to power their planes and tanks and helicopters, except for those that have already been shipped over to Ukraine anyway, or maybe before that, given to the Taliban in Afghanistan? 
Let's follow that up with this story. Interestingly, it's from the British Daily Mail. You didn't expect it would be the WAPO or New York Times, did you? A report, they say, finds that the U.S. military, I hope you're sitting down, folks, and not counting on the U.S. military to defend the country, especially not with the open borders. Anyway, the U.S. military, such as it is, is weak. Can you believe that? And would struggle to win an actual war if they succeed in kicking it off beyond the European theater. China is meanwhile building more warships. Fighter pilots don't have jets or training. And by the way, if you understand what's been done to them medically, no wonder there aren't as many. And you got to wonder how many that still are there are actually medically fit to fly. And guess what? The Army can't recruit enough soldiers because the smart ones seem to know better. This worrisome trend, says the piece, was aired on Tuesday by the Heritage Foundation, a think tank that analyzes the strength, or lack thereof, of the armed forces and potential threats to the U.S., I guess outside of the obvious ones there in the swamp. In its foundation's index of U.S. military strength, Heritage rated the military overall as weak and at risk of not being able to protect America's vital national interests. Uh, gee, tell me something we don't know. The weak rating, down from marginal, recorded by the Washington-based agency last year, is the first time it's ever happened in that index's nine-year history. And it further found that rapidly advancing China remains the most comprehensive security challenge to an ill-prepared U.S. military force. And aside from that overall weak rating garnered by the military, Heritage provided each of the various military branches with their own individual rankings. This probably won't surprise you either. The Army scored only marginal, the Air Force was ranked very weak, the Navy just weak, and the U.S. Marine Corps actually fared the best, imagine this, still receiving a strong rating. Maybe because they're God-fearing, and some of them seem to even understand that oath they took to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And while the U.S. has been undermining its own military, from the Zyklon B injections to promoting perversion, transsexualism, and political correctness over unit cohesion and actual military readiness, America's increasingly few remaining allies, like the U.S. and South Korea, can't really contribute that much in the event of a global conflict anyway, says Heritage, citing conflicting security interests. <laughs> Maybe they don't want to freeze this winter. In contrast... America's key adversaries, not counting the swamp, but China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, do make the list, have all rapidly advanced their military capabilities over recent years, says the piece, and have ramped up their efforts to intimidate our overseas affiliates. Gee, do you think? Says the think tank. With the result that when, not if, one of the conflicts that the regime has been promoting around the world eventually erupts, the U.S. won't be ready for it, especially when it comes to the potential of two major skirmishes surfacing at once, like, say, one in the Middle East, or maybe Ukraine, or pick somewhere, the other on the Korean Peninsula. Oh, yeah, and let's not forget other obvious places like Taiwan. Or maybe, given what we've seen lately, the shores of the left coast and up through communist California and even Texas from the open border to the south. And it's no surprise either that the leftist slant on this story doesn't mention it, but certainly your host has for quite a while. The Biden regime has been sending a whole lot of America's ammunition, ordnance, military shells and missiles. You name it, if it might be needed to defend the southern border of the U.S., it's been shipped over to Ukraine. Isn't that convenient? This next story is interesting for several reasons. Among them, it may be one of the very few reasons why we might wish America could be more like the Brits. UK Prime Minister Liz Truss, says one headline from the Gateway Pundit, has resigned as of Thursday after only six weeks in office following what they call her tumultuous start at number 10 Downing Street while the British economy remains in crisis. 
And see, folks, there's part of the problem. If they just had their own really nasty lying press secretary like Corinne Jean-Pierre, they could just say, Everything's fine and wonderful, and the economy couldn't possibly get any better. <laughs> and it won't, and they get away with it. As you might suspect, the Daily Mail has their take on this one, too. Trust quits, they say, after just 44 days at number 10. The PM has admitted defeat after crisis talks with Tory chiefs over a flood of Member of Parliament no-confidence letters, with a replacement that's said to be chosen in a week, while Jeremy Hunt has ruled himself out, but Mordaunt's campaign is up and running. She told the House of Commons yesterday, I'm a fighter, not a quitter, after which she uh, quit. I guess she's not much of a fighter, either. But you do have to give her this. At least she's not senile. And she's arguably a whole lot less of a political whore than so-called VP Heels in the Air Harris. I have to admit, folks, I did like this comment from a Brit via Zero Hedge. Four chancellors, three home secretaries, two monarchs, and now three PMs in just four f***ing months. And I guess i got to say it again. Yeah, and who's willing to swap them? Especially since now we'd better turn to the shotgun blast of news that is the World War III front. Russia has destroyed the satellite uplink station for the communication center of Ukraine outside Odessa with all the NATO gear inside. To destroy it, a special op was organized by the Russian army, and after pinpointing their location, probably your cynical host ads, by just using the GPS from some of the text messages, it was hit via high-tech precision weapons. The destruction of this earth station, at least for the time being, has totally shut down Ukraine's secure government communications network and stopped the flow of NATO intelligence, sick, to Ukraine's government distribution network, so that military planners are no longer able to get real-time intelligence via space satellite communications from NATO, which creates extremely serious problems, says Hal Turner on the radio show there, for the Ukrainian government to organize operations and secure communications, said the Ministry of Defense for the Russian Federation. In the area of the Palevka settlement, Odessa region, the communications space station of the Government Communications Center of Ukraine was destroyed. And they added, the consequences of the impact will be seen after the last pass of the Sentinel-2 and Worldview spacecraft. Anyway you slice it, it is a massive blow to the Ukrainians. And that, folks, is apparently why there's not a whisper about it, and I looked in either the WAPO or New York Times. The British press, at least, along with Zero Hedge, is talking about this one. Britain's military has belatedly revealed, says Zero Hedge's coverage, a dramatic live-fire incident over the Black Sea that involved Russian jets. But it was back in late September, underscoring just how close at any moment Russia and NATO powers could be from an inadvertent exchange of fire, possibly, or I think some of them are thinking, hopefully, spiraling into a broader war. UK Defense Secretary Ben Wallace informed the House of Commons on Thursday that during a September 29 patrol by a British spy plane over the Black Sea, a Russian fighter, quote, released a missile in the vicinity of their aircraft in what they called international airspace after being interacted with by two Russian Su-27s. Wallace said the UK's allies have been informed of the dangerous close-call incident, while further affirming that routine patrols in the regions have now been resumed at this point, but will have fighter jet escorts. Here's another story on the World War III front your host didn't see reported too widely. Hal Turner's radio show did, though. In a shocking statement released Tuesday, the foreign minister for Russia, Sergei Lavrov, said that, quote, Russia sees no point in maintaining diplomatic presence in the West. Adding, 
It makes no sense, and we have no desire to maintain the same presence in Western countries. Our people work in conditions that can hardly be called human. They face constant problems, threats of physical attacks. And Lavrov went on to reveal that the Russian foreign ministry is, quote, currently carrying out a geographical reorientation of its activities, both abroad and in their central office, suggesting a potential downgrade of Russian diplomatic presence in Western nations. Ask Hal Turner, gee, do you think we might get a pretext for a quiet embassy evacuation before a nuke launch? Because at least those people with a perspective of history know that when diplomacy is shut down, war is all too often next on the agenda. I want to follow that up with a couple of what I think are interesting observations by former Reagan-era official and Washington insider Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. And this he notes in the headline after Putin has warned NATO against the coming global catastrophe who refers to what's going on in Donbass and then notes that a limited intervention seems to be Putin's intent. And as he then goes on to add, saying he's made it clear for some time, Putin, I believe, is delusional. The evidence is conclusive that Washington has widened the conflict and that the conflict is no longer limited, except maybe in Putin's mind. So while the West is fighting a real war, Putin confines Russia's participation to a war in a limited police action. Putin's recent statement saying he believes there's no need for any further Russian attacks on western Ukraine and its infrastructure proves that he does not see Russia fighting a real war, which, says Dr. Roberts, sounds like a denial of reality on Putin's part. As I see it, he says, Putin's position involves more provocations and more war, i.e. a widening, and the inability of the Ukraine to actually put down their foot strongly is, in fact, leading to wider conflict. Let me put it this way, folks. What he's saying is, Putin had better wake up and smell the coffee, because the nutcases that are pulling the Obama Fuhrer strings, oops, did I say it that way? Well, I guess that's true, but the Biden puppet strings then are jonesing for a nuclear war, and it looks more and more like they intend to keep up in the ante until they get it. On then now to a whole different aspect of arguably the same war, but in a far different locale. This comes from the Epoch Times' Lawrence Ducamp, who writes that authorities in California, the communist state there on the left coast, have issued a warning to parents, at least those that don't seem to care about their kids, ahead of the coming Satanic High Holy Day. Halloween celebrations after about 12,000 fentanyl pills packaged in several popular candy boxes were seized at Los Angeles International Airport, which makes you wonder just how many weren't. What with Halloween approaching, says the L.A. County Sheriff's Department in a press release, parents need to make sure they're checking their kids' candy and not letting them eat anything until it's been inspected by them. If you find anything in candy boxes you might believe to be narcotics, don't touch it and immediately notify your local law enforcement agency, they said. Let's see, how can I put this most politely, especially a year like this one? You're an absolute idiot. Maybe you don't care about your kids. If you let them go out and participate in satanic rituals, you got to admit at the very least they're utterly pagan, and eat crap given to them by people, and you know this if they work in the school boards, or, like in California, want your kids to be able to mutilate their genitalia and destroy any lives they might eventually have or wanted their brain development stuttered by forcing them to wear masks, and now, yes, injecting them with the poison poke. In other words, people who want them at least destroyed, or better still, dead. I never have been inclined to soft-pedal it, folks, but now i got to come right out and say it. How many kids have to die and be killed outright before parents realize they really don't care about the children? If they can't abort them before they come out, they've got more and more ways to kill them later. First spiritually, then economically, and, yeah, ultimately physically. 
Which brings me next to this one. Yeah, we all knew it was going to happen. I talked about it earlier in the week as a likely, well, possibility. Now it's not only a probability, it's a done deal. The Center for Death and Control and Children Killing and their Vaccine Advisory Committee, SICK, has now recommended officially that the COVID-19 Zyklon B poison poke injection be added to the childhood immunization schedule so that they never reach puberty, much less adulthood. A list that many states use as a guideline, says the Washington Examiner coverage, less than an hour old as I'm doing the recording. When it comes to crafting vaccination requirements, Achtung for schools und daycare and other places where they like to kill kids. Am I soft peddling that? The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, listen to this, voted unanimously Thursday morning, what, not even one that isn't outright evil? to include the Zyklon B COVID-19 not vaccine on the 2022 child und adolescent immunization schedule seen as a recommendation to stupid parents and satanically evil health providers on when certain vaccines should be administered. Okay, literally, i got to pause for a second and take a deep breath. If this doesn't infuriate you folks, you're just not paying attention. The schedule does not dictate what vaccinations are required for school entry because the states get to do that, but it's likely to prompt some at least to add the Zyklon B to their list. And did you catch the part about how this was a unanimous recommendation of all of those people who weren't kicked off of the board because they had a shred of integrity or could read a scientific journal for comprehension or maybe even once understood what the Hippocratic Oath was about, much less the Nuremberg Convention? I'm not even going to read what one of these blithering, lying sons of Satan said in justifying their decision to kill as many kids as possible other than just one tiny bit of a lie. Like this whopper, the benefits continue to strongly outweigh the risks. (laughs) Well, that is, if you want your kids dead, which is the risk, and obviously, as far as they're concerned, the real big benefit. Trouble is, says the CDC, demand for the vaccines to innocent little children appears to be low. I guess there are some good parents out there who know what's being done to their kids. Months after the shots were authorized for younger populations, all the way down to six months, uptake, says the Washington Examiner piece, still remains low. Only 9% of children ages six months through four years, and a third, or 38% of children ages 5 to 11, have been given their first Zyklon B poison injection, lamented the CDC. And unfortunately, I'm running out of time for today, but I do at least want to mention this piece by Alex Berenson. appeared on a number of places, including the Burning Platform, but it evidently originated on Alex Berenson's substack, where he says the lockdowns have failed, the so-called vaccines, at best, fell short, and now everyone, except those that uh, get paid to lie for the CDC, I think, as well as other three-letter evil agencies. But now, says Berenson, it really does appear that the CDC might just be dumb enough, and yeah, they are, folks, or as I pointed out, they're far, far worse, to provoke parents again by putting the mRNA shots on the childhood schedule. And as we now know, they did. And isn't it funny, he writes, how it turns out they're doing this just before the election? I guess your host has to summarize that aspect this way. That might provoke a few people into voting against what's going on, but we all know that's not going to make a difference. The organizations and entities, and I emphasize that part, that they really need to keep on board are those that are not only going to rig the election, but be motivated to continue the massive, world-altering, and outright demonic cover-up. Don't forget that aspect of it, because it's really becoming impossible to deny. And on that score, I'll wrap up with a couple of really cogent remarks from a woman who's becoming one of my new favorite leftists. Okay, well, maybe former leftists. 
This is Naomi Wolf's Substack. It's a piece entitled Facing the Beast, and she begins by telling the story of a bear that came up to her house while she was sitting on her porch one day, who then trapped her in her house. She went and tried to get a gun, ended up finding, uh-oh, the wrong one. She grabbed a BB gun instead, and then describes in detail the next hour or so of terror until finally some neighbors showed up and rescued her. The problem is the bear had become habituated, gotten used to being able to have its run of the property, and the result was terrifying. At certain points of extreme stress, she said, I couldn't even bring myself to look outside anymore to see where that bear was. Could I not see him because he was already in the house? I went to that place that's so familiar to those of us with PTSD, a traumatized place where you freeze and you engage in magical thinking. Then she goes on to describe her rescue. I think I was coherent, but I was in shock. For days, though, I ruminated about the sharp yellow teeth of that bear exposed as he raised his snout in the air, sniffing like a scene from a horrifying fairy tale. Why do I tell this story, says Naomi Wolf? Because the bear had been growing more and more comfortable emerging from the woods. He grew more and more comfortable exploring our trash. Then he took over territory exploring our lawn. Yes, he was habituated. And here the lesson is, I had done nothing to stop him. He was here because I let him slowly take over our property and even our home. The fact that I wasn't able to look directly at the bear didn't make me any safer. It was my denial that put me in ever greater danger. And that, of course, not only did it really happen, but it's also a great metaphor. She then goes on to describe, oh yeah, guess what? The vaccines and Pfizer. And she outlines in grisly detail some of the financial connections, as well as the lethality and the damage caused by the poison poke injection, as well as the original BioNTech Fosun, and that's the CCP-run Chinese company that really is pulling the strings, and their MOU. It seems to imply that all of the BioNTech Fosun joint ventures activity is in China, or in regions aligned with or close to China, but... Fosun Pharma didn't stay in China. It came here. It's now Fosun Pharmaceuticals USA with branches for R&D and product formulation in Boston and Princeton. But here's the crucial information, she writes. Fosun Pharmaceuticals doesn't just partner with Pfizer BioNTech to make the COVID-1984 not vaccines. They also make, as we've noted, the PCR tests that are the single primary metric used to determine the scale of the pandemic in North America and Western Europe, and thus the lockdowns of entire countries, whole industrial sectors. It's a CCP-run campaign, says Naomi Wolf, and CCP-created product. And they decide who can go to work or school, who must close his or her shop or business, who can and can't travel in all of Europe. And in the U.S., a CCP-run company decides the formulation of the PCR and antigen tests that go deep into the nasopharyngeal cavities of Westerners who are forced week after week to test and test and retest with these, I'll put it in here, self-serving abomination of products. So you take all the above and consider the virus originated in China. Now all of the testing apparatus, as well as millions of the so-called vaccines, the catastrophically damaging lethal solutions to the virus that really aren't, they also all originate from the very same folks, including, of course, the Fauci Meister here, too. Mapping these points of evidence, I think you'll start to see, she says, what I see. Well, hopefully by now, folks, it's getting kind of hard not to. We are, in fact, staring into the abyss right now, she concludes, because we have let the beast come too close to home. It's almost, folks, like you can smell the sulfurous odor emanating from the left coast and deep state swamp all the way here in the Midwest and the Rockies. And I really wish that was hyperbole. So keep paying close attention to what's going on and be ready for the inevitable.